Hi there, and welcome to Vegan Island Radio, the show that's dedicated to artists, activists and everyday people who are doing their bit to encourage others and bring about a vegan planet in their own special way. Today on the proverbial Vegan Island, I have with me Ruben Skeet. Ruben is an animal rights activist who considers himself super new to veganism at just two and a half years in, but feels that he has experienced so many changes in that time it could easily have been much longer. He does outreach with We The Free and other grassroots activism in and around Bath and Bristol. He currently works for PETA, the People's People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, as their UK anti-vivisection campaign leader. Ruben also went into anaphylactic shock in Birmingham New Street Station due to a nut allergy and was rescued by two paramedics from an ambulance TV programme. The planet I don't care. Cruelty and pain given to us again and again. Drag us to our deaths. We're no different from your deaths. Veganism will cause a change. Make eating us become what is strange. All animals should be free from evil intentions and captivity. Change what is normal in society. No more of this insanity. There's no need to fund this abuse. No real reason, no solid excuse. What they are put through is such a shame. You would never tolerate the same You stand up for all sorts of rights Yet pay to kill all these innocents How do you sleep at night? For the animals I'll keep singing As long as you keep killing As long as you keep paying To steal their lives from them Veganism is the peaceful way. Go vegan. 
to rectify what is so wrong. Overdue, needed so long. Let all animals be free. Go vegan now. Go vegan now. Go vegan now. Go vegan now. Go vegan. Good to see you, Reuben, and welcome to the island. Uh, Alan, thank you for having me here. You're very, very welcome. It's lovely to um, to see you. Um, so, <laughs> tell me all about the anaphylactic shock. Were these uh, were, the, were the paramedics real paramedics doing a TV show, or were they just actors? No, they were they were real paramedics. They didn't send in actors to help me. Um, unfortunately, they weren't filming at the time, so no one gets the joy of uh, seeing me going into anaphylactic shock. But I'd been at a conference in Birmingham. I was still at university at the time um and all of the food had been things that you might think would have nuts in but they'd specifically put a sign on it that said no nuts um so i thought oh that's quite good it must be you know like an intentional thing that they've done to you know they've they've made all of the dishes without nuts um and later on there were some people carrying around platters um this was in my pre-vegan days though it was chicken satay um as someone who's always had a nut allergy I wasn't aware that satay was nuts because I've never had it. <laughs> so I ate it and thought like, crikey, that's really spicy. Um, turned out it wasn't meant to be spicy. <laughs> um, so I went away from the, the conference. We were heading to the train station to go back to, to where we were at university in Aberystwyth. Um, and I got on the train and I started to think, no, this definitely isn't normal. I still feel awful about half an hour after eating that. Um, and so I, you know, I quickly hopped off the train before it left. Um, and then we got the first aiders and luckily the ambulance got there really quick because the first aiders told me the last time it had taken about two hours. Um, yeah, so I had the joys of, of going into anaphylactic shock on the train platform with everyone kind of slowly walking past and watching. Um, but yeah, so it was, uh, an experience. <laughs> so how did the, uh, uh... Yeah, that is definitely an experience. How did the film crew, how, um, were those paramedics just, at, were they close by because they happened to be filming something? or? Well, they said they weren't actually filming that day, but they are the paramedics who are always on, um, you know, the ambulance uh, paramedic response TV show. Um, so I think they were just doing their normal job that day. Um, but they said if, I were, if, if, if I'd chosen to eat nuts a day earlier, I could have uh, got my 15 minutes of fame because we were filming the day before. I'm not quite sure that that's the way you want your 15, 15 minutes of fame to be. <laughs> I didn't look too good. I was quite swollen up. So, <laughs> how did you how did you discover that you actually had a nut allergy? How um how do you discover something like that without it being I, I don't know fatal? Um, well, quite, you discover it the hard way, or at least that was how it happened for me. So I think I was, I mean, I don't remember it because I think it was about two. Um, and I think maybe my parents had given me like pe maybe peanut butter or something like that. Um, and then I got covered in a rash, um, and they called like, I mean, they weren't a really common thing when I was a lot younger. So they called up a friend of ours who was a doctor and he said, has he eaten anything? Um, and they said, yeah, he just did some peanut butter and he said, call an ambulance now. You need like, you need to get into the hospital. I mean, luckily now as an adult, cause I've always had it, I carry like, you know, medication with me in case it does happen. Obviously as a baby, I didn't have that cause we didn't know how to, uh, an allergy. So they had to kind of rush me to the hospital. Um, and I think, um, the last time it happened, my mum actually got to the hospital before the ambulance did. So <laughs> maybe I might be better off calling her. Yeah, especially with the uh, the state of the the NHS at the moment. Not not just the NHS's fault, obviously. They're doing a cracking job. Mm, yeah. So how did you um, how did you find yourself moving into the into the vegan uh, lifestyle or the philosophy? Um. Yeah. So my um my partner had been vegetarian for a couple of years. Um. And so I I think I must have been a bit of a slow learner. Um. Because I didn't feel super persuaded just by that. And then, but what I did start doing was I started replacing the foods that I found I could easily replace. Um, and so I, you know, I replaced 
check in with Quorn or whatever. Um, and eventually I reached a point where I found, wow, I'm pretty much not eating any animal products. It became, so it was almost, um, at first I at least went vegetarian almost out of convenience because it just became so easy. I'd replaced everything I, that I used to like. Um, and then when it came to veganism, um, you know, making that leap from vegetarian to vegan, I guess I kind of decided, um, I think we watched Earthlings, um, so kind of the usual uh, route into veganism, watch a, watch a horrible film full of uh, animal suffering. Um, and that introduced me to veganism. And then uh, my partner and I, we both started reading an awful lot, uh, loads of books around that time. And that was what moved it from like, um, just being vegan and, and choosing not to harm animals to feeling like to kind of starting to understand the deeper philosophy behind it and um, feeling like an obligation to do more than just not harming them ourselves, but to be pushing for a world where no one is, um, you know, abusing their rights. Yeah, it's quite an important uh, mental step to, to take, isn't it? Um, it's very easy to just uh, maintain it as a diet or and not really uh, put too much thought into it. And it's, um, I find the more people I talk to that um, are active, it's once you make those connections, it's very difficult to not become active. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've found like, um, it just feels like an obligation every time there's like uh, some kind of activism being organized or I've got a window to be doing something. Um, it feels like an obligation that like, okay, well, I have to be there because um, the small sacrifice of, of my time is nothing compared to like the change that we're trying to bring about and the harm we're trying to stop um, being caused to others. Um, so yeah, it just feels like a, like an obligation really. It feels like you kind of have to, once you make that like kind of philosophical leap. So you were saying, um, uh, that you've, uh, you've done some outreach with we, the free, um, I don't know if you'd like to elaborate on your experiences with them and, uh, what kind of outreach that you've been doing that you do with them? Cause I know they do different sorts and they have done, they've changed their, their, their tactics, et cetera, over the, over time. Yeah, so we, we've done a couple of different things. Um, it mostly kind of operates on a kind of standard idea of speaking to general members of the public. Um, we do it in Bristol and Bath, uh, normally about twice a month. Um, uh, my experiences have been pretty much entirely positive. Um, every time I go, um, I at least have like three to four really good conversations with people um, where you really feel like they've gone away with um at minimum a seed planted um and then the different kind of formats we, we've followed more recently in in bristol and bath we the free they've been doing like um a three minute video challenge um and it's all kind of themed with uh kind of matrix style so we're asking people whether they want to take the blue pill or the red pill um the blue pill being going about their evening or day and not hearing about a slightly disturbing uh truth that we are trying to tell them about or they can choose to take the red pill and then they watch the video and it's quite empowering for people to make the decision to find out about it themselves um, and then you kind of lose a lot of the people who often with outreach events um, will just walk past your screen and, and hurl abuse because everyone who's trying it has chosen to so the only person they can be annoyed at if they see this footage is them um, because we've not made anyone see it. Um, but yeah, so we found that it's improved like the quality of the conversations we have. Um, but yeah, so that's where we are at the moment. Yeah. And you also, um, so you're now campaign manager, is that the right word? Uh, or you're in charge of the anti-vivisection campaigning for PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. How did you, um, how did you fall into that one? Yeah, so I'm like, I think the title is uh, anti-vivisection campaign leader. Um, so I kind of take the lead on UK campaigning um, to do with animal testing. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I knew before I uh, almost as soon as I went vegan, I kind of knew that I wanted to find a way to dedicate as much time to this as possible. Um, and I couldn't think of a better way to do that than my nine to five five days a week, sometimes six, sometimes seven, um, being, um, doing animal rights work. Right. Um, and so obviously I applied for it and 
was lucky enough to get a role doing a job that I love and is really fulfilling. Um, and knowing that every morning when I wake up, um, my job for today is, is you know, um, ending animal tests. So do you, uh, would you like to tell me a bit about animal testing? Um, uh, there will be a lot of people that feel that it doesn't really happen that much, that there's a lot of medical benefits. Um, because, you know, either you're told nothing or you're told that it's a, it's a worthy thing for, to, to be happening and it's a necessary thing to be happening. If you don't, so I don't know if you'd like to um, add a few answers or a few opinions on that. Yeah, so I think um, people not knowing very much about it is by design. Um, I think the the agents working behind this um, know that if the general public were completely clued up on what was going on behind the doors of a laboratory, um, they wouldn't be allowed to keep doing it. Um, so they really thrive on people not knowing. Um, but it is it is huge. To, I think um, the stats just came out recently. It was something like 2.7 million animals tested on last year. Um, that can be mice, rats, rabbits, guinea pigs, dogs, primates, uh, pretty much any animal that isn't, um, like a, a great ape. So chimp, chimp, uh, orangutan, and that, that's in the UK context. Um, they can include any number of, of different tests that if someone, some kind of random member of the public was doing, they'd get locked up. But if it happens behind closed doors, um, you know, it's protected and, and kept secret. Um, the primary campaign that I work on um, is called the Forced Swim Test. Um, so that is mostly taking place at the University of Bristol, hence I'm so active in, in this area. Um, and that involves a rat or mouse being dropped into an inescapable cylinder of cold water and being left to struggle for up to 15 minutes. Once they're done struggling, they'll remove them and decapitate them. Um, and this has been, uh, I think the, the researcher behind this is, it dates back to like 1998, so about 25 years. Um, and that's happening almost every year. You know, half of these tests are being reproduced, the same test over and over again. Um, and then to people who feel like it's producing like some kind of life-saving drug or you know, producing huge benefits, at, at least using this research, for example, in 25 years, they haven't produced a single therapy or, or treatment based off of this. Um, and at least in the, in the American context, um, I think the stat is something like 92% of drugs that pass animal tests so that from the animal tests, we have every reason to think they would work in humans. 92% of the time, they then fail um, in humans. So the idea that they're like some kind of uh, magic elixir for finding treatments for, for humans uh, just isn't realistic. No. Um... <clears throat> No, and quite a lot of campaigning. Uh, I mean, there's uh, quite a few major charities that uh, spend an awful lot of time promoting the uh, the goodness that they do, which clearly they do do a lot of good in uh, in various aspects and various ways. They also rely on animal testing uh, and fail to mention that, that to the public. I feel that's obviously on purpose because a lot of the public um, are not keen on the idea. Yeah, I mean, as I said, you know, they really don't want they don't want people to know about this. They, I mean, in the charities context, I think if people knew um, what they were doing to, to these animals, you would you would cease to receive donations. Right. Like, um, for instance, if there were a charity supporting this, the falsehood test, if, if your patrons believed that you were dropping rats into beaks of water for the last 25 years, um, why would the general public want to support you? Um, and there are tests like that, that, that charities are supporting, uh, you know, funding all the time. So as we move into a, a more modern world, uh, is there any validity uh, in animal testing? Uh, I imagine, uh, you know, are, are there alternatives? What are the alternatives? Yeah, I mean, there's not really, I mean, you can't really claim validity to animal testing and, and it be moral at the same time. Um, because the idea that animal testing is valid for humans relies on the idea that the animal is therefore similar to a human. And so for whatever reason, you wouldn't do that test to a human. If the animal is similar to us, if they're the same as us, you therefore morally shouldn't do it to them either, right? Like if you want to study pain, for instance, and you use a mouse to understand pain in a human, 
you're relying on the idea that that mouse experiences pain the way you do. So the reason that they consider it unethical to do these experiments in humans is the exact reason it therefore has to be unethical to do it on another animal as well. And in terms of the validity, um, we're hearing all of the time about how, how, in, how invalid they turn out to be for humans. Um, like there was, a, there was a group of scientists who spent a decade um, researching, trying to replicate the, mo the most landmark cancer studies in animals. Um, they spent a full decade doing this. They released a paper in 2012 and they found that they couldn't replicate 47 out of the 53 studies they did. So if they can't replicate these studies that are done on rats in other rats, the idea that they can therefore like replicate them in humans is ludicrous. Um, so yeah, they, 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 it's not working and that's been recognized by numerous people. Um, but there are other methods we can use. You know, we've got like, um, they can grow like, uh, they call them organoids from stem cells, um, which is essentially creating like, um, you know, human organs. So it's, it's tailored to humans or um, you can use computer simulations to try and understand our response, uh, how the human body would respond to drugs. And they have found that these methods often have a much higher success rate than using animal models. So, for instance, in predicting like which drugs will cause heart problems, um, they found that computer simulations are much more effective at predicting that than uh, animal models. Or they found that with like um, they did a study on uh, animal drugs that passed animal experiments but then caused liver damage in humans. They found that a organ on a chip could flag the drugs that damaged organs 87% of the time whilst animal tests were failing. So there's, there's lots of methods that are not just can serve as alternatives but can work much better because they're created to match humans, um, which obviously other animals aren't. You know, they have their own responses to different chemicals. So uh, with your experience of campaigning and talking to people, um, do you think that the end is in sight? Do you think that there's a way of moving this forward so that it is ended? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely progress um, happening and, it, you know, it's entirely reasonable to think that we can do away with this, you know, this type of research, essentially. Um, for instance, in, in the US last year, I mean, it's not a step to outright banning it, but, um, you know, they produced a new act uh, or a new law at the tail end of last year that finally got rid of, like, dr uh, animal testing mandates for drugs. So it allowed, before it was mandatory to test drugs on animals, um, following that, it then became that you could use a computer model or an organ on a chip or, a, you know, cells in a Petri dish instead. If you can prove that they are, um, you know, a good way of, of measuring an animal's response, uh, a human's response. Um, so progress is happening. Um, there's progress happening in Europe as well. The Netherlands, for instance, have made um, very big steps towards ending animal testing. They can go further and produce their, you know, finally produce their roadmap to ending it. Um, but there is huge progress happening and there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. But that doesn't mean we let up. That means we go harder now than ever. Um, because, you know, we've got to keep pushing to get it over the line. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you, I'm sure you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, we brought back uh, extended animal testing. Uh, I think that was for co cosmetics. And was that just pretty much overturned as soon as it was announced? It felt like felt like that was the case. Yeah, so it wasn't quite that they'd brought it back. It was more that it had been going on um, almost potentially since since it was first made illegal under the guise of, rather than it being for the consumer's safety, being for the employee's safety, so the people working in the factory dealing with the cosmetics. Um, they essentially, a court case ruled, I think, that they could continue to do that. There was their massive public outcry, and suddenly they decided that they, they weren't going to do that. And so it shows that one minute, you know, they'll say, it's completely necessary for us to do this, and then when there's enough public support for them to not do it, suddenly they find a way to not do it. Um, and so it is an instance of, of you know, mass public opposition to, to something um, having really quite a huge effect. Um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the power of the collective. Um, it's interesting, like you say, you hear so often the fact that there is no alternative, that it is imperative. 
and then something like this comes along and enough people do put up a stink about it and suddenly it's it's actually well we can get around that we can do it a different way um i presume i mean i've felt for a long time that the vivisection um obviously there's a lot of money in it and it's not just from the uh from the drug companies themselves there's the people that make the cages and the people that provide the animals and uh, and all the services around that i mean it's it, is it um is it quite a big industry behind the scenes, not just the end product, which is the you know, which is where everybody focuses? Yeah, I mean, like you know, this is a huge industry. There's people making money out of producing new strains of animals that can exhibit certain symptoms that maybe a researcher wants to study. Um, there's huge money in. Um, I mean, often in in many countries, animals are being shipped. You know, monkeys are being taken from the wild and shipped to um, to be sold to laboratories. Um, you know, it's a huge industry and there's a lot of vested interest in this not going away. And then in terms of the individual researchers, you know, if you so take the, the poor swim test campaign that I work on quite a lot, for instance, if you've dedicated, you know, like 25 years of your life to researching something and receiving grant money to do that, to accept that what you've been doing has, has produced, you know, zero benefit for anyone and has produced huge harms for the, for the you know, the individuals you've experimented on um it really goes against your vested interests and your capacity to keep being you know a respected researcher and continue to make money out of your job if you accept that that is the case so there's huge vested interest in um individuals and corporations continuing with this model um and so that's obviously why we need huge public um opposition to it continuing are there instances of uh individual researchers themselves that have uh suddenly thought, my God, what I'm doing is a really bad thing and I need to stop and uh, and tell other people? Or is that not a thing? Well, you, you know, there are instances of, of individuals who have, who have worked in, in animal laboratories um, who realise um, how horrendous what, you know, what they've done is. Um, and lots of people to get their, you know, to get their PhD often have to end up, um, often end up testing on animals. Um, there is, there's one example I can think of a, a journalist who had worked in a laboratory, wrote an article about, um, a monkey who he'd worked with. So he had gone away for eight years by this point. Uh, he hadn't worked in the laboratory for eight years. He'd become a journalist. Um, and he wrote about a monkey named Clayton, um, who he'd worked with. He went back to the laboratory eight years on to do the story. And he spoke quite, um, or wrote quite sadly about how when he went back, um, the baby monkey that he'd held in his arms eight, eight years ago was now fully grown. They would hide at the back of their cage. They would no longer want to come to the front to see them. When he turned up, um, Clayton would, you know, bare his teeth at him, you know, time to go away. Essentially, he'd been through numerous surgeries through this time. Um, and, you know, the journalist wrote about how in those eight years he'd moved across the country twice. He'd, he'd you know, started different jobs for that entire time. Uh, you know, the Clayton had spent every day staring at those bars around him and being taken out every day for, for numerous, uh, you know, operations or, or exercises to be done with him. Um, and so, yeah, there are plenty, you know, there's plenty of people who are speaking about this, um, who have been involved in these industries in the past and have kind of realized what a flawed approach they are. Um, I think even the, the former director of the National Institutes of Health in the US, Francis, uh, Francis Collins, said that preclinical uh, research and particularly animal models are currently most susceptible to issues with reproducing results. So that's, that's the head of their, you know, one of their main funding bodies, um, often for animal testing, who's saying um, in terms of difficulty uh, replicating scientific results, which is, you know, one of the bedrocks of producing new information and, and scientific advancement, one of the most flawed areas for reproducibility is animal testing. Um, so yeah, there's, there's plenty of, of people who have been involved in this that are now comfortable critiquing it. Um, I didn't actually mention in your introduction, but uh, you're currently making a film. I mean, I think you're most of the way through making a film, A Nation of Animal Lovers. Um, which is hopefully, if all goes well for you, um, uh, available at the end of this year. Um, do you, I, I'd, I'd be very interested to know the backstory and then obviously the, the content and context of the film. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, it's a film that my partner and I are making. She studied film at university, so she's been the main driver on the technical side because at least at the start, I didn't understand any of that. Um, I think we naively, when we first started, thought, oh, we can, we can smash out a, a feature-length film in no time, just the two of us, and have since found it takes a really, really long time to do. Um, but essentially, it spawned from... Um, I think a lot of people get this when they first go vegan. Um, there was a lot of frustration with like the, the inability to articulate quite what it was we wanted people to do and to articulate ourselves well, to persuade other people to go vegan, particularly those close around us. Um, and we thought, what skills do we have that could assist us with um, putting, the you know, putting the message out there in the way that suits us? Um, and so we thought we'll make a, a film about it. So it's in a similar vein to kind of similar films, so like kind of Dominion, Land of Hope and Glory, um, Earthlings, that kind of vein of films, so a lot of um, quite graphic imagery. Um, but we also wanted to focus on some of the um, other industries. So it talks about greyhound racing as well. Um, so not just how we exploit animals for food. Um, and then it even goes down to um the you know the importance of of insects morally you know their individuality um towards the end of the film um so we really wanted to cover all bases um of the film which hopefully if it, it should be out by the end of the year um all goes according to plan so is that all um is that all shot in this country are you using footage from uh, other places yeah well, we've tried to keep it as much in the UK as possible because we want it to be as relevant as possible to a UK audience. Again, like with, with animal testing in, in animal agriculture, there, there is great interest in what goes on behind those doors not being seen. Um, so sometimes uh, footage of a certain practice or something like that is only available filmed in another country. Um, and so where we've had limited other option, we've used... Um, footage from other countries and then the other thing we've tried to use where we can is footage that has been released by farmers or by by the you know animal agriculture industry um, because it becomes very difficult to accuse us of cherry picking um, you know specifically bad footage when it's them who have actually chosen to release it you know yeah if it's their, if it's their own footage it's very very hard to pretend it wasn't you yeah <laughs> Fat and docile, big and dumb They look so stupid, they aren't much fun the Cows aren't fun They eat to grow, grow to die Die to be et at the hamburger fry Cows well done Nobody thunk it, nobody knew No one imagined the great cow guru Cows are one He hid in the forest, read books with great zeal He loved Che Guevara, a revolutionary veal Cows say tongue He spoke about justice, but nobody stirred He felt like an outcast, alone in the herd Cow doll drums He moved we must fight, escape or we'll die Cows gathered around, cause the stakes were so high. Bad cow pun. But then he was captured, stuffed into a crate, loaded onto a truck where he rode to his fate. Cows are bummed. He was a scrawny calf who looked rather woozy. No one suspected he was packing an Uzi. Cows with guns. They came with a needle to stick in his thigh. He kicked for the groin, he pissed in their eye. Cowell hung, knocked over a tractor and ran for the door. Six gallons of gas flowed out on the floor. Run, cows, run. He picked up a bullhorn and jumped up on the hay. We are free-roving bovines. We run free.
today. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. We will run free with the buffalo or die. Cows with guns. Crashed the gate in a great stampede, tipped over milk truck, torched all the feed. Cows have fun. Sixty police cars were piled in a heap, covered in cow pies, covered up deep. Much cow dung. Black smoke rising, darken in the day, twelve burning McDonald's. Have it your way. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. We will run free with the buffalo or die. Cows with guns. The president said, "Enough is enough." These uppity cattle. It's time to get tough. Cow dung flung. The newspapers gloated. Folks sighed with relief. Tomorrow at noon, they would all be ground beef. Cows on buns. The cows were surrounded. They waited and prayed. They mooed their last moos. They chewed their last hay. Cows outgunned. The order was given to turn cows to whoppers, enforced by the might of ten thousand coppers. But on the horizon, surrounding the shoppers, came the deafening roar of chickens in choppers. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. We will run free. With the buffalo or die, cows with guns. Unlike some other islands out there, we want you to have some things that are actually worth having for survival. So we give you a complete botanical encyclopedia, which will enable you to forage for all of the plants available to eat across the globe. And of course, a boat in order for you to venture away from the island and continue your journey into the ocean of opportunity for self-development and vegan outreach. You also get to take one book, one website address that you can recommend to fellow travellers and your own personal must-have vegan item in order to keep your spirits up and strengthen your resolve. So, firstly, what book would you like to take with you on your journey and why? Um, so I picked, it was a book that really interested me when I first, um, you know, went vegan, called Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism um, by a philosopher called James Rachels. Um, and I think it's a really useful book to help um, people understand where we're coming from and, and to persuade them to to adopt a lifestyle that respects the rights of other animals. Um, because it starts for, from a common ground that most people can accept. So it, it's predicated on the idea of evolution and that if you believe in evolution, you therefore have to accept that humans aren't just this special category of, of animal that is completely far removed from all of the others. We've all followed, um, you know, we've all basically adapted to our environments through natural selection. Um, and so um, Darwin proposed that the differences between animals were not differences of kind, they were differences of degree. Um, and so I think once you you have that common ground that is based in reality, not opinion. You know, it's it's just a fact that, that kind of evolution is how we've arrived at where we are. So you've got the common ground with the person who you're, you're offering this book to. Um, and then 
the implications of that, if you believe in equality for humans, um, which most people, I believe, do, um, means that if you believe in evolution, if our attributes aren't special, you then have to extend those those rights to other animals as well. Yeah, which is quite an important thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, as you hit on at the beginning of that, is the fact that we do, as a species, seem to seem seem to think of ourselves as separate from um, and not actually part of the animal kingdom and part of, you know, the wider nature itself. You often hear people saying they're going to go and take some time in nature without actually realising they're, they're part of it already. Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> How did you come across the book in the first place? Where did that come from? Um, well, I think I saw it. Um, I read Animal Liberation by Peter Singer, and I think it was one of the books referenced in there. Um, I can't remember what it is that Peter Singer refers to in the book where he references it, but I know that the line caught my eye. And I thought that was quite interesting. I find um, evolution quite interesting anyway. I like um, when looking at like behaviours that humans often do that um, may seem slightly weird, looking at what's the what would have been why why do we do that what would have been the purpose um you know when we're in kind of a race to survive essentially um you know survival of the fittest why did we produce this this attribute um and so it caught my eye um and then i started reading and i couldn't put it down so <laughs> so you also get to take a, a website with you with you can recommend to other people um Obviously, the purpose of that is so that you can inspire others uh, to investigate veganism for themselves and understand the philosophy and the approach and hopefully create a, a vegan world faster with information that they can gather at their own speed and in their own time while you're not actually there. Um, what kind of what, what, what website would you like to recommend to people? Um, I would probably recommend Ed Winters's YouTube channel, also known as Earthling Ed. Um, I think for anyone who in their head feels they've they've uh, argued with veganism and, and have settled the issue, um, I think they will find that almost any argument they've offered, someone has already offered to him in one of his videos and he has deconstructed it. Um, and so I think any of them kind of rationalizations that anyone has created, they'll find is swiftly taken apart um, if they watch enough of his channel for long enough. Um, and yeah, I think he, he's very good at conveying and articulating arguments that often um, many of us would struggle to articulate quite as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a really good resource to help people to understand um, why a lot of the things they, they use to justify their um, abuse of animals is, is essentially predicated on like off-the-cuff rationalizations that they've never really thought through. I also I personally feel like he's improved a lot. His debating skills have obviously, uh, as with most things, if you practice them more, I think his debating skills have got a lot more refined as the time's gone on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he's been doing it long enough um, and he's got like, I guess, the right aptitude for becoming good at that kind of thing. You know, he's, he's patient and isn't easily like flared by people or provoked. Um, he tends to keep a kind of level head and really reads into what it is they're trying to say so that you can actually deconstruct what the actual point of what they're saying is. Um, so I think they're really useful attributes to have. And I guess over the years, he's honed his craft. Yeah, and he certainly he seems very polite and pleased to have the company of people to, to debate and to talk to, which I feel comes across really well. Yeah, I think definitely in the setting he's trying to work in, you know, the type of activism he's trying to do, um, they're extremely useful um, attributes to have. Um, you know, but if, if your activism is like a discussion type format, you want other people to feel like you value them being there, right? There's no point um, someone turning up and, and you immediately being angry at them um, because they're probably not going to get persuaded by anything you have to say. So... <laughs> So and um, finally, um, when you leave when you leave the uh, island on your travels, um, obviously there's there's always something as a of a must have vegan item that you'd want, would if you if you had the option you'd prefer not to be without. Um, so I, 
I always like to ask, what would be that one vegan item that you'd prefer not to be without on your travels? Well, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure, and I find most days, or at least once every two days or so, I find I would rather not be without it. It's chocolate milk, um, like obviously oat or soy milk. Um, so I find Alpro, Oatly, or I discovered the other day M&S have a really good one as well. Um, so any of those three, um, I find I get a real hankering for. So it would probably be uh, chocolate milk. <laughs> So is that exclusively cold or do you like a hot chocolate as well or doesn't it really matter? Uh, probably doesn't matter too much. I do tend to have it cold, but I am partial to a, to a hot chocolate as well. So um, either one would do. <laughs> so now all that remains for us to do is for me to thank you again for coming and visiting me on the island and for you to climb aboard your wonderfully crafted vessel and sail off into the sunset to continue your journey towards a fully vegan planet. Thanks once again to Ruben Skeets. All the links to find him are in the description. And as Ruben sails away on their brand new adventure, I'd just like to say a special thank you to Dana Leons, Ethereal UK and Rahil Baburam for providing today's music. Links for all of them are in the description. That's all for now on Vegan Island Radio. Please like, share, subscribe, leave us a comment if you wish. And if you'd like to help maintain the island, then why not check out our Patreon link and see what you can do to help out. Thanks once again for tuning in and come and join us next Sunday and find out who else will wash up upon our shores. Thank you.
The Ark Experience. Hello, Ruben. Hello, Ark. Are you ready for your questions? Yeah, I am indeed. Thank you. Have you ever swum naked in the lake? Um, I have not, so I've not got a very interesting answer for that question. Um, no, I haven't. <laughs> what was the last song that you listened to? Ooh, um, I was listening to it just before I spoke with you. So, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. What do you have with pancakes? What do I have with pancakes? Oh, I have them right. So, with lemon juice and sugar, as they uh, should be. Bees or wasps? Oh, um, I mean, I do feel like wasps probably get an inordinate amount of um, dislike, but I will have to go with bees. Um just because I find them quite cute, to be honest. So, um, yeah, bees, I think. Why do you think the UK government won't promote plant-based eating, considering how urgently we need a transition? Um, oh, that's a, that's a question you could spend a while on. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of vested interests. Um, I think the majority of the population aren't currently in support of it, and they just want to do whatever they whatever they can to get re-elected rather than necessarily doing um, what would be ideal for policy. Um, I think the people within our government and within the House of Commons themselves mostly want to continue eating animal products and would rather be um, selfish than uh, protect our future. Um, that's just a few things I could rattle off, but I'm sure there's innumerable reasons that they're corruptly avoiding protecting our future in favour of eating and abusing animals just because they want to. Ah, but what about canines? Oh, a favourite question. Um, well, I would say um, whether, whether canines implied we naturally ate meat anyway, I don't think nature is a particularly good justification for what we should do now if we can avoid it. And I think the argument that canines are clear proof that we need to uh, eat meat is quite weak. Um, I was thinking yesterday about our nails and how they're only really ideal for like opening fruit like bananas and oranges. Um, so my response might be, ah, but nails rather than claws, because um, I don't think they'd do much to rip open anyone's flesh. So. Have you ever played the lottery? Um, I haven't actually, no. It's another, <laughs> another really boring one. Um, no, I've always felt that I'd just be paying into someone else's pocket um, and getting nothing. But, um, you know, you do have to be in it to win it. So um, if my friend buys a ticket and wins and I say, oh, I never bought one, um, I might still get a bit annoyed with myself for not just buying that one time. So, um, But yeah, no, I, I haven't bought one um, and I probably don't plan to either. What do you think about eating insects? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's completely unacceptable as well. We've got a perfectly good alternative to eating animals, which is eating plants. Um, I don't know why as humans we feel so much desperation to find a way that we can continue to eat someone else who has a life and who has their own interests. Um, Darwin actually wrote about in his uh, actually did research himself on on worms and the the special qualities that they have, um, and he felt he believed that they had intelligence. Um, so I don't know why we're so addicted to this idea that um, we can only enjoy food if we need to harm someone for it. Um, so no, I think it's uh, it's completely unacceptable to eat insects. Um, you know that's their only chance that they have at a life the same way we do. Um, so. Why not just eat plants who, um, to our knowledge, have no interest, have no interests, they don't have experiences of the world. What is your favourite houseplant? My favourite houseplant? Um, well, it keeps changing because I keep killing them all. Um, <laughs> but I've got one behind me, a yucca, 
Um, that's been doing okay for a while, but it does look a little bit droopy. Um, but yeah, it's a constantly changing uh, favorite house plant because I keep finding a way to kill them. I think I've got one behind me there. I think it's called a Swiss cheese plant or something like that. I think that's probably not its actual name, but that's what it's sometimes referred to. That's gone on for a little while. Um, cactuses I can keep alive, cacti. So maybe then, because I, I have to do pretty much nothing with them. If you created a vegan ice cream, what flavour would it be? And what wild name would you give it? Oh, well, I'm really rubbish at coming up with names and stuff like that. Um, I would probably pick, I mean, I used to like mint choc chip before. Um, and I would probably call it something really exciting, like vegan mint choc chip, I reckon. <laughs> what is your favourite activism? My favourite form of activism? Well, that depends. My favourite form of activism to do... Um, I have enjoyed the slightly more disruptive stuff I've done, um, but I do find it stresses me out quite a lot before I do it. But in the moment, it's normally quite exciting. Um, I think maybe making a bit of noise outside someone's, someone's venue is my favourite to do. In terms of my favourite, as in most effective, um, I don't really know. I think they all have um, awful, awful kind of different forms of activism, seem to have their own pros and cons and reach different people. But yeah, I do like making a bit of noise outside of whatever or whoever it is we're targeting. Um, I think that tends to be quite fun. Trees or flowers? Ooh, trees, I think. Maybe, I don't know if that's the popular or unpopular answer, but probably trees. Um, I grew up with a massive oak tree in my garden, which I always loved having around. Um, and yeah, I, I think they're... Um, particularly oak trees that, you know, they might have been around for 700 years, 900, up to, you know, more than a thousand, some of them. Um, and each one of them is its own huge ecosystem for all of the um, animals living on it, which I think is quite amazing to think about. Um, yeah, and just to think how long they, that tree predates us, how many people have, as that tree had wandered past it in its time, um, I think. So, yeah, I'll probably pick trees over flowers. How many times have you been stranded on a desert island this year? Well, it has happened. I was thinking vegan island, uh, you know, uh, radio, um, and it does seem to happen all the time. Vegans are always getting stuck on desert islands and not knowing um, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to have to eat meat. Um, so, um, luckily, I might be one of the few vegans who hasn't who hasn't ended up on a desert island yet this year. Maybe a couple of hypothetical desert islands I've been told I might be on. Um, but I've not found myself stranded yet, so I've done okay. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, oh no, I'm going to... Uh, in, never intentionally. Sometimes I've wandered out of a shop not realising it. So like, um, I don't know, I've picked up two newspapers and thought I'd only grab one. Um, but no... Um, though when I realise, oh, I've wandered off with this, I do tend to think like result um, rather than, oh, I've got to go back and give it back to them. Um, yeah, so normally uh, I'm not too worried about it if I have accidentally wandered off with something additional. That is the end of your questions. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you, Ark. Wunderbar. All done. <laughs> Or with zero context. <laughs> you could do.